hear God's word. Hebrews, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? And then in chapter 2, verse 1. I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I'll answer concerning my complaints. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. That's some big writing, to be able to read on the run. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, let's review a little bit, because it's my guess that we're not all super familiar with the book of Habakkuk. And uh, where we were last week is uh, Habakkuk is voicing, as we heard there in in chapter 1, verse 2, his great disappointment. He is giving cries of his disappointment with the Lord and what the the Lord's slowness to answer his prayers. And he's complaining to God and he's looking at the evil amongst God's people. Essentially, he's looking around the church and saying, why is it so awful? And why are we so, so unrighteous? And why is evil and suffering allowed to continue amongst God's people and no justice be done? And God's response is, oh, okay, I am bringing some injustice. I am bringing my discipline. And it's going to come in the form of the Babylonians. And they're even more evil than the people who lead you now. And they're going to invade your country. It's going to get even worse. And Habakkuk goes, wait, what? That's not the answer that I was looking for. I'm even more confused and frankly more upset that the, the, the remedy seems worse than the problem. That you would bring the unjust and bring them in, these evil and wicked men from Babylon to do discipline upon your people, upon those who are unrighteous, but at least are more righteous than the Babylonians. And now at the beginning of chapter two, he says in verse one that he's gonna sit down and he's gonna wait. He's given voice to his complaints, and God will begin here, as we see, give him a second answer. But in the interlude, in verses one through three, we see that Habakkuk is in a season of waiting. In fact, God even calls him and commands him to wait, to wait upon God's justice and God's answers. So last week, we looked at giving voice to our disappointment and what it looks like to voice your disappointments to the Lord. And this week, we now look at the theme of waiting on the Lord, that when life is not the way you desire it to be, and you're waiting for God's answer, or you're waiting for the things that he said are going to come to come to pass... What does it look like to wait upon him? Now, waiting on God is a regular theme in the Bible. It is something that people of God often have to wrestle with. If you look at the Psalms, the phrase is actually used over 20 times in which the psalmist will cry out and say, I am waiting on you. I am waiting in silence. There's times where he's commanded to be strong as he waits. Waiting on the Lord, what does that even mean? Well, it's something we certainly don't like to do. It's never been a trait that humans like to do. But in particular, our day and age, we are, we are not people who are akin to waiting, right? We have air fryers and microwaves. Aren't air fryers awesome? They have completely changed French toast sticks for me over the last couple weeks. But I like them to be done in four minutes or less because I got places to go and things to do and things to get done. A couple weeks ago, my family was at Disney. What's the worst part of Disney? 
all the waiting that you have to do. It's just not simply the American way, it's not the human way, but this just makes the reality, the reality of what God often calls us to, which to wait, all that much more difficult for us as a people. Because we most often realize that we are called to wait when we have found ourselves in a place where we can't do anything about the fact that we are having to wait. And when you find yourself in a season of waiting, it's because you haven't been able to change it. And that's what makes it so difficult. Everything in us wants to rise up and say, in the face of our troubles and our sorrows and the injustices, is to go, I will do something about this. But so often we come to the end of our rope of going, I've tried, tried all the do somethings, and now I simply have to wait on God. And that is where some of you are at. You have intense, unmet longings and desires. We have a lot of children around here. We have a lot of new babies. Some might say there is something in the water with all the children that have been born in this church over the last couple of years. But in the midst of that, there are those who also struggle with having children. And they are done all the doing some things medically that they can possibly do. And yet still they do not have a child. They're in a place where they have to wait on the Lord. For some of you, your spouse is not converted and it has created a breach in your marital relationship. And actually it feels like all the doing some things that you could possibly do to try to bring your spouse to the Lord simply make things worse than it was before. For some of you, your teenager is addicted. Addicted. Some addiction is destroying their life. And you have tried all the doing some things, the sending them of sermons, sending them to treatment, getting them to see counselors. And yet the addiction has them by the claws. And in all your crying out, you're still waiting on the Lord to do something. Some of you can't believe, you can't believe the physical ailments. They just don't seem to go away. One physical problem rolling into another. Some of you have financial stressors in which you just don't ever feel like you can get ahead. And all of your asking of God to provide for you and to give you some freedom financially in your life it does, not seem, it does not seem to answer. Some of you are teenagers, maybe you're waiting for the braces to come off and the pimples to go away. By the way, the pimples don't go away, they just move. <laughs> Thank the Lord from your face to something more clothed. And other, others of you are looking around your world and you're crying out and saying, justice. God, where is your justice? And the phrase, how long, that we read in verse 2 of chapter 1 this morning is, indicates that a sufferer has been long in his pain. We don't cry out how long when it just started. We cry out how long when the pain we've had to endure for quite some time and we've tried to do everything we can to relieve the pain and we've asked God to relieve the pain and he hasn't done it and so we cry out how long. And the difficult part of, none, of waiting is the unknowingness of it all, isn't it? I mean, when God answers your prayer, yes, that's great. You got an answer and it's yes. You got what you asked for. If he answers no, well, at least there's clarity. You can grieve it, you can lament that, and you can move on. But if the answer is wait or nothing in silence, that sends you kind of catapulting into the air, it's grasping for something to cling to as you wait. So I ask you, what are you tired of dealing with? What are the things that you have said, I'm sick of this, I'm sick of waiting? Enough is enough. Well, this morning we're going to look at what does it look like to wait faithfully? And when you're in that place, what does it look like to wait faithfully? And then what does the Lord provide for us as we wait? Four headings this morning as we look at Habakkuk chapter 2, 1 through 3. 
understand, I'm not, for most of these, it's, it's interesting. We have to, I'm going to speak not so much to very, giving very clear, direct references to something specific he says. It's more the general tone of what he communicates here. And the first thing, if, if you're going to wait on God, you must take on a certain posture. To wait on God, you must take a certain posture. And what, is, what does the man of God do, Habakkuk, in this verse 1? He goes in the watchtower and he takes a stand in the tower and he goes and he looks for God's answers. He's given cry and given voice to his complaints and now he goes and he waits in the tower. Now this is a deliberate decision to say, I have given voice, I will be quiet now, I will be silent and I will simply wait for his answer. And in this I want you to see that there requires to do this a posture of humility and submission. God, I can't force you to answer me. God, I don't have a right to your answer. God, I am admitting I don't have answers or solutions to my very own problems and my very own questions. I'm admitting that I can't fix things, and so I'm looking to your answer. And I'm simply humbly saying, I will sit here and wait upon your timing and your choosing as to when you will bring your answer. And this is an act of incredible humility and submission. Because to make a choice to settle in and wait for him to show up and to answer you and to acknowledge is to acknowledge this, that you are not God and that he is. That you don't know everything. That you are not omniscient. And you see, our, our unwillingness to wait, by the way, what do we call an unwillingness to wait? Impatience. Our unwillingness to wait is driven by the belief that we know what we need and when we need it. And that we, that, that knowledge, that omniscience, that we know how things should work out and how this thing should lead to this thing. And yet that is not, that is not how the world works, does it? James challenges believers in this and our, our natural and inherent view that we are omniscient it says this in James 4 come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit verse 14 yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring what is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes instead you ought to say if the Lord wills we will live and do this or that what's he saying He's saying, it says you have your plans and you know, you believe you know how things ought to work out, but in actuality, you don't even know what's coming tomorrow. You're a mist, you're here today, and you are gone tomorrow. And so when things go wrong, we tend to think that our worries and our fears, it's interesting, are feelings that we can't help. But you know what James is saying there? That our feelings are flowing out of an assumption within us. That our feelings of fear and our feelings of agitation and impatience flows out of our sense that we are omniscient and that we know best. When we look at God and say, if X, Y, and Z doesn't happen, then my life is a disaster. Or if X, Y, and Z does happen, then my life will be a disaster. But this assumes you know. That assumes you know what God is doing. It assumes you know how things ought to go for your good. But patience. Patience and humility is cultivated in us when we have rightly decentered our sense of knowing and we put God back at the center and said, I am small. I am a vapor. You are forever. I don't know everything. You know all things. In waiting so, we take a posture. And yes, we give voice to our cries. But then we sit in quietness and humility and submit to his timing 
into his ways. It's a hard word, but it's the call of God if you're going to wait, to take a posture of humility before him. The second thing we're called to do in regards to humility, or in regards to waiting, is you're going to have to persevere. That is the whole challenge of waiting, is you're going to have to wait. The real difficulty of waiting is this, is that, you know, rightly, the number one thing that you have to do, that when God calls you to wait, is to wait. And we hate that. We are somewhat reasonable people. We understand if you go to Disney, you're going to have to wait in lines. But what drives us nuts, and when the voice of grown adults, even in us, is when the waiting has extended longer than we believe is reasonable. And to that, God, we go to God and we say, how long? Why are you making me wait so long? And his response is, why don't you go to the corner and wait some more? And this upsets us. We don't like this, and the temptation at that moment is to abandon our post, the waiting post. But this is why God does not suggest that he wait. He actually commands it here in this verse. He actually gives Habakkuk an answer, but then he says, but my answer is going to be seem slow to you, and so you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait even longer. And the command of God is to wait is not felt by us until we believe that we have waited long enough. And then it becomes something that is very difficult for us. But that is when... That is when the command becomes most poignant to us, to wait in that moment. That when God has told us and commanded us to wait, that we go, okay, I will go back to my waiting post. I will not abandon what he has called me to do as I wait for his answers. And that is what Habakkuk did. He stood at his post. What did he do? He went up into the tower. That's what a guard would do over the city. So they would make sure that they would go up to a high place and they'd look out and they would make sure that they could see, are there messengers coming? Are there enemy armies coming? And he's going up and he's saying, he's struggling with God. He's not happy with God. He is confused by God. He's upset and disappointed. But what I want you to see is that Habakkuk does not leave his post. The one to whom he is still looking to and the one to whom he trusts is he is looking for God's answers. And he is not abandoning his post. You may say, God, I'm going through a dry time. I feel my prayers are lifeless, that God doesn't hear. I don't blame him, actually. I don't really spend near as much time in prayer than I actually probably think I do. But a lot of things in life give me more life than Jesus does. God, when are you going to show up and connect with me again? What are we called to do at that moment? To stay at our post. To not abandon prayer but to keep moving back towards the Lord, even if it feels like he is distant. The mom who is wrestling with motherhood and she's got three little kids and constantly changing diapers and it's snack time again, are you serious? Followed up by cleaning up the kitchen and while she cleans up the kitchen, the children destroy another room in the house and so she goes, and this is day after day after day and she's like, I wanna give up and I wanna run away from this. But the woman of faithfulness stays at her post. The man who goes to work and comes back every day and it's an evening in front of him engaging with kids who don't want to have family devotions and he doesn't want to engage at a heart level and he wants to just chill out. That's a father though, in that moment, he doesn't abandon his post. He's waiting for joy in doing these things and maybe it's not there, but he says, I will carry it out because this is what God has called me to do even as I wait for the joy. Imagine a sentry who's guarding a tower or guarding a city and they just go AWOL and they're arrested for going AWOL, and they go before the judge, and they say, well, I just didn't feel like it. I, I, I always got tired. I wasn't feeling this whole need to stay up and, 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 and be, take guard over the, over the city. This assignment just wasn't working for me. Is the judge going to go, oh, well, I get it. 
It's hard to wait. No. We're called by God to be a people who are, stay our posts, even when it's hard. Even when it feels like he is not there in the midst of your callings and your difficulties. A parishioner once wrote John Newton saying this. He says, I get hardly anything out of prayer. And Newton responded in a letter, a letter saying this. Well, I promise you that you're, almost, you're definitely not going to get nothing out of not praying. So keep going back. Now, this is a really important question. What does it mean or what does it look like to not leave your post? In other words, what does it look like to wait on God? And what I mean by that is you don't turn to something else in your trust. That while God it seems to you to be slow in, your ans- in answering you and providing for you, that you don't go running after the answers yourself. And the Bible is littered with Christians, with people who are supposed to be God's people who were constantly did this, in which God made promises and they said, I-, I don't like the slowness with which you are bringing your promises to bear. Abraham is one of them, isn't he? You're going to have a child and Abraham's watching the years tick by and he's going, I need to take things into my own hand, so let me go hang out with Hagar for a little while. But what we're called to do in the moments when God calls us to wait is to cling to him and trust. Not relieve the tension in our souls by going running after our comforts and abandoning our posts, but it's continue to cry out to him in the midst of it, to wait for his deliverance. We say, I deserve a better life. Life shouldn't be this hard. God has not answered me with the spouse, the job, the children, the success I feel I need. I want to feel good. You know, in that moment... When you believe you're entitled for God's answers in that moment, that is when you will run after pornography or overindulgence in alcohol or food or shopping. Because these things take the sting out of the waiting. They relieve the tensions that we feel inside. Let me me give you a personal illustration. This one, I don't look super good in this illustration. I look rather uh, effeminate. You know, when I'm a strict budgeter and we give faithfully and I want to save and every, you know, I'm constantly checking the bank account and checking the budget that we create. And lo and behold, you know what would happen? All of these things happen that seem to destroy my budget. Like cars breaking down or leaks in the roof. And in that moment, when I see that it feels like God is not providing and providing the discretionary income that I believe that I need, it is in that moment that I am most tempted to go do something foolish financially. Now, I'm not talking about going and buying a timeshare. I'm talking about going and jumping on Amazon for two hours or going, you know, and over, now it's silly and pedantic kind of illustration, but that is what we do. That when I'm frustrated with God's lack of willing to provide me an answer and to provide for me, I go running after overindulgence in that moment. Where do you run when you're frustrated with waiting? But the call is to stay your post, to remain faithful to him, what he has called you to do, even as you wait upon his provision there were two Marines in, in Ramadi, Iraq. They had been assigned a post one night. They didn't know each other. Behind them at the post of the checkpoint that they were guarding was about 50 U.S. Marines and about 100 other Iraqi soldiers. These two men didn't know each other. One guy was about to leave. He'd been deployed there for the last seven, eight, nine months and was going to leave the next week. The other guy had just got in country. They were from two different units, but they were both assigned to guard this outpost. It's one of those outposts where they have the barriers kind of in a serpentine motion so that any kind of truck bomb would have to weave through in order to get to the outpost to do anything damaging to it. And they were standing there, standing guard one evening, and they have this caught on video in which they see a blue dump truck suddenly begin to rush towards the outpost. 
barreling through the barriers. And on the video, it's a, there's a six-second video in which you can see in which they run out from their post, they whip around their weapons, and they take aim and they fire as a dump truck laden with explosives comes towards them. And they bring it to a halt, yards in front of them. And at that moment, the truck detonates, taking out them, their lives, as well as the guy who was driving it. But in so doing, they save 150 soldiers. General John Kelly said this at the ceremony where they posthumously were given the, the Navy Cross for bravery. He said this, this is what a true Marine does. They didn't step back. They didn't run. They stayed at their post. And this is the call of God upon us when we're called to wait. Let me give you another illustration of this in regards to the moral front. Except it's not in the real world, it's in literature. Some of you may know the story Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. In the novel, who's Jane Eyre? Jane Eyre is this woman who is orphaned as a child and abused by the family that takes her in. Her life is difficult. She has a plain, and she's a plain woman, and it's a difficult life. When one day, in a wonderful meet-cute, a man rides up on a horse, and then he falls off the horse, right at her feet, and his name is Mr. Rochester. And in this chance encounter, they begin to develop a relationship, but over the next season of their life, they develop a romantic relationship that begins to flourish. And in love, he proposes to her, and they have this unmitigated joy of new and fresh love, and so they go to get married. And back then, the, the, the person, the clergy in, in, in officiating the wedding would ask this question. Maybe you've been to a wedding where they still ask this. I, I, I don't ask this question because I'm afraid of the answer. But he says, is there anyone here who has an objection to this marriage? Well, in this story, somebody has the audacity to stand up and they say, yes, Mr. Rochester has already been married and he is still married. See, Mr. Rochester had a wife and she went insane and she was living in an upstairs bedroom and as Jane Eyre finds this out, it becomes that this is true, and it, she finds out about this woman who has gone insane that he is still married to, she begins to have great confliction about whether they should continue with the marriage, and Rochester, trying to convince her, says this to her, come on, let's run away, let's live a life together, we can go to the south of France, who would want that? No one will know us there, it will be bliss. But ultimately, she decides that she can't go through with it, and she says, I can't marry you. And he responds, well, give, me, give one glance to how horrible my life is without you. If you don't marry me, all happiness will be torn away when you go, he says. And when, what then is left for me? All I'll have left is a life with a maniac living in my upstairs bedroom. You might as well just bury me now. What will I do, Jane? What shall I do without you? Where will I turn for companionship and hope? And here was Jane Adair's response. Do as I do. Trust in God. Believe in heaven and hope to meet there again. As for me, I shall hold to the principles that once held me when I was sane and not madly in love as I am now. Laws and principles are not there for the times in which there is not temptation. They are there for such moments like this when body and soul rise up in mutiny against their rigor. If in my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? No, I will keep the law given by God there I plant my foot. And so yes, there is temptation to abandon your post, to run after other gods, to run after the things that would give you comfort and to break the tension in your life and to provide the answers that God seems to be slow in providing and to do it all yourself. But the God's call here in the midst of, yes, your own heartbreak of waiting to say, turn to him again and stay your post.
Third, if you're going to wait, you need a perspective for waiting. What's the whole point for why Habakkuk says, I go up to the station myself in the tower and the watchtower? What's a watchtower give to you? Gives to you. Well, cities had it, right? You can't see a whole lot from the ground. You're constricted in your view. But from a tower, you can see bad weather coming and give warning. You can see emissaries coming from other nations. You can receive messages and send messages from other towers. You can see if the bad guys are coming. The tower, you can see the larger kind of perspective of what is going on around the city. That's the tower view. And this has always been important in warfare, right? You have to have important kind of the largest scene in order to understand what is going on. You know, one of the, the great stories in the Civil War is why the South lost in the Battle of Gettysburg is because Robert E. Lee had lost his eyes and ears, that his cavalry general had been frolicking off somewhere in Pennsylvania, and he could not see what he was about to run into. It's critical in warfare, and it's critical in life to see the larger picture and the larger story. So that is what Habakkuk does here. He gets up to where you can see the larger story the grander view of what God might present to him. This is the perspective that we need, that in the midst of waiting, in the midst of these micro moments where it seems that God is slow, we need the grand vision of what God is doing across all of human history and also the larger vision of what he is seeking to do in us. This is what Paul did. Paul, when when God failed to seemingly answer his prayers, remember Paul was conflicted, he had an affliction of body or soul, and three times Paul says he asked God to relieve it from him, and each time God says no. Paul is a man who's been afflicted, beaten, prison, stoned, shipwrecked, all that though, his view of life, that's all on the ground. But what does he say? He says this in Romans chapter 8, this is the tower view that Paul has the perspective that we need. He said this, for I consider that these present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, I have to view my condition, my affliction, my sufferings, my waiting in the larger view of what God is doing in my life. That I believe that God is doing something here and that can give me hope even as I wait. It's like this, if you're in labor, I've not experienced labor. I hear it's painful. But the, the, the joy in labor, it would be that much worse, right? What I've heard is from women who've had both labor and kidney stones, they've said kidney stones are way worse. Why? Because there's nothing good at the end of it. Whereas child giving birth, there's joy and there's hope there. And so it is with our suffering and with our waiting. There's something to look forward to. And that is exactly what God gives to Habakkuk. In verse 2 and 3, God comes and speaks to him and he says, I am going to give you a vision. That's what we're going to look at next week, the details of it. In other words, what he says in short is this, in verses 2 through 20, that this power Babylon that is so unrighteous and so unjust and that's going to do so much destruction to my people, I am ultimately going to bring justice down upon them. And my kingdom is to come to bear on this world. And he's saying to Habakkuk, that is the vision that you need. That while I may seem slow in bringing my kingdom to bear, while all this may seem difficult, he's saying, I have a bigger story that I'm shaping here. I'm doing more than you can necessarily see in this moment, Habakkuk. And so trust in me. Trust in me that my vision is good. 
that I'll bring to bear justice and righteousness in this world. And so God calls us to stay our post and to wait on him and to not abandon the struggle of waiting. And one of the ways he does that is in the midst of your waiting, he says, here's what's coming in the end. Here's the reward at the end. And there's actually a, a specific and very clear illustration of this in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 12... Jesus tells his disciples a parable. At the end of the parable, he's telling his disciples that I want you to wait for me to come back. He said, I'm going to die, I'm going to leave, but I want you to be faithful in waiting for me. And he says, blessed are those whom the master finds at their post. Here's what it says. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes home. And so when God comes, comes back, and he finds his servants still waiting on him and finds them at their post, and then says this. Go back to verse 37 for me, Jackson. Truly I say to you, this is what, when God comes to us, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at his table, and he will come and serve them. Did you, did you see what he's saying there? To the people that he says, yes, you've got to wait for my return and wait for my deliverance, here is your great reward, that when I come back, Jesus will take on the clothing of a servant and he will sit you at his banqueting table. And in, the, in heaven, this is what he will do. And he will get down and he will wash your feet. And he will serve you. It seems heretical, doesn't it? except for the fact that he's the one who said it. That the reward for the people of God who are willing to wait in poverty or persecution or difficulty in sorrow is that this, that the very king of the universe will come and serve you hand and foot. That is astonishing. And so when we say, yell, we cry out, God, where are you? And he seems distant. He says this, there will be a day. There will be a day in which we will so intimately be close to one another that you will feel me covering you with the warm water of heaven and washing you. We say, that seems like almost too much. How could I believe such a thing, that God would stoop to such a level? Well, we can know that he will do that because he's already done it, hasn't he? On the night before Jesus was betrayed, as he's about to, to, to send his disciples out, and they're all going to abandon him in the coming hours, and if Judas, the one who is there, is going to betray him, what does Jesus do? It says he lifts up his garments. He tucks them in for service. He takes up a basin and a towel, and he washes his disciples' feet. He does the most servile thing. That's amazing. And even more so, it's representative of what he does on the cross, that he's one who becomes a servant on a cross who takes on all the filth and all of our sin and takes death for us so that we might be served by him for all of eternity in heaven. This is what he does. This is what he does. And so when you're in a season of waiting, you look to the cross. You see, look what degree he will go to in order to come close to me, to be able to serve me for all of eternity in this way, to wash me of my sins. That's that remembrance, like we'll celebrate next week at the Lord's Supper, in the midst of waiting will remind you of his faithfulness to you. While he, you experience him as someone who is distant from you, 
and not answering your cries. You'll see he does, and he has answered your cries from the cross of Jesus Christ. You ever seen a child, a young child, who's been left at school after an event? There's the group of kids who are there. Let's say they came back from a field trip, and one by one, they're kind of sitting down with their friends, and one by one, they see their friends getting picked up by their parents. And that little kid is trying to hold it together. One by one, their friends leave, and then the last other kid leaves, and they are left as the final kid. And what begins to happen to that kid? The quivering starts. They believe that they've been abandoned by mom and dad. And the teacher or whoever, the adult who's there trying to comfort them, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. And then the teacher's phone rings. And it's mom or dad saying, I'm so sorry I'm late. Will you let them know I'm on my way? I'm on my way. That's what the cross reminds us of. He's on his way. Yes, you're waiting. But he's coming. He's coming back. Fourth, one final thing, there's the promise for those who wait. Yeah, the promise that he's going to come back. But you go, listen, um, you know, he hasn't said when he's going to come back. He makes that explicitly clear. I mean, every couple of years we try to guess when he's going to come back, but we all get it wrong. And so this, I, you're still making me wait. I'm still in this indefinite period of time where I have to wait. And said it, in, in fact, in verse 3, God says it's going to be this way. He says, for this vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And we go, really? Because it feels like a delay to me. It feels like a really, really long delay, but yet the promise here is he's saying, I will not delay. In other words, he's saying, my timing of my answers and my provision are good. My timing is good. My timing is not thrown off by the evil things you've seen in this world, and nothing can keep me down. I am not coming back because there's something constraining me. I will come and provide when I see best, when it's best for you and for my glory. And to believe the promise, you have to believe that God has both the power, that is the ability to keep his word, and also his, uh, the goodness that his timing is right. And so let me show you why you can trust God's timing. Another story from the life of Jesus, and then we'll be done. Here's why you can trust in this promise that his timing is right, even if it seems like a delay to you, that it's so good. In Mark chapter 5, there's a guy named Jairus. He's a prominent religious man. He comes up to Jesus, and he cries out. He says, my daughter, my daughter is dying. And he asks Jesus, will you come with me quickly to save her from death? And you can feel the movement. Jesus begins to move towards Jairus' house. He's got a large crowd of people who are pressing up against him. And here all of a sudden, it's like all of us, if we were to kind of suddenly leave church and try to go to, we're going to walk to one of your houses. And there's this crowd of people with Jesus and they're pressing around him. And so there they are. He's the ambulance going to save Jairus' little daughter. And then suddenly, the story comes to a screeching halt. Jesus stops short and he goes, somebody touched me. Somebody touched you? Are you serious? There's a whole crowd of people. Of course somebody touched you, Jesus. And he goes, no, no, no. I felt power go out of me. What, what had happened? A woman had come up who had had an issue of bleeding for many, many years, and she had touched Jesus, and the power had come out of him in such a way that she had been healed, and he stops the whole procession. The ambulance turns its lights off. He parks the vehicle, and he stows out, and he has a conversation with this woman, and you've got to feel Jairus going, come on, come on, we've got to go. 
She's had this issue for 20 years. She's not dead yet. She can live with it for a few more hours. We can come right back here and you can have this conversation with her. But Jesus pauses and speaks to this woman and is tender to her and loving and, and careful. And then the news comes from one of Jairus' messengers, one of his servants. Don't bother the master any longer. Your daughter's dead. And Jesus looks at Jairus and he says, do you believe? And what's Jairus' response? I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus says, good, let's go. And they go to the house and he walks in and he tells everybody, everybody's weeping. And the professional mourners are already there. And he says, everybody be quiet. She's only sleeping. But what do you see what Jesus does? What Jesus does in that moment, he comes into that room and he goes to that little girl and he says to her, Talitha kum, which is Aramaic. It says, little girl. He's speaking to her as a father would. My little girl, Lila, we call her, her middle name is Tove. I call her Tophers. It would be like me coming to Lila's room and putting my hand on her as she sleeps and saying, Oh, my Tophers, my sweet baby, arise. And she rises from the dead. Now, what is Jesus showing us in that? He's saying, one, I have the power to reach into death itself, to pull back the destruction of this world, to do good things. I have the ability to bring life and redemption. And then second, he's saying this, look at my fatherly love for you. Look at the timing that if you would see this love and affection from this man to hear his fatherly voice of Talitha Kum over you, and you may not understand why your father tarries, why he has not remove some sort of form of suffering or difficulty in your life and you keep crying out for him to, to remove those things. But in the midst of that, you can know this, that his timing is perfect and that he is good because he loves you and he speaks to you like this, my little girl, my little boy. Look at the tenderness of my eyes and the sweetness of my voice. And yes, you may not understand my ways, and yes, you may not understand my timing, but you can trust in my love for you. And if I love you this much, that the timing of my love and provision for you has got to be for your good. And so, yes, you may be in a season where you're called to wait, but would you hear the voice of your father who whispers your name in the midst of it? Let's pray. Lord, the people I feel most um, burdened for this morning who the, are the people who've actually felt really distant from you. And th they've waited on you to provide for them in the midst of suffering. And not only do you seem slow to provide for them, but now because of that, they, feel, they actually feel as if you're not close to them. So now there's a double grief. There's the double grief of the sorrow and the suffering, and there's the sense and the the lack of sense that you're close. And so, Lord, even while all our flesh screams, he has abandoned me, I pray that we would trust your word that speaks the voice of the Father over us. 
and that they would keep waiting. Like this father, like Jairus, that we would say, Lord, you're, <laughs> I believe, but man, oh man, I am struggling to believe. Lord, would you come in your grace and your mercy to give them the sustenance to keep running to you when you don't feel close? But then, Lord, would you not tarry any longer? Would you come near your people, that they would hear your fatherly voice, that they would hear your affections, that they would hear your promises over them once again, and they would give them the strength to wait in whatever suffering they face in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.